so today we are going to go through Luke chapter 22. Alright, so if you have your scriptures, turn with me to the, the Gospel of Luke. And all you got to do is to, somewhere around the middle of the Bible, turn to the middle of the Bible, you'll get the Gospels. Alright, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, alright, and then the Gospel of Luke, turn to chapter 22. And in another two weeks, we will be finishing our journey uh, through the gospel, the gospel of Luke. Uh, now, Luke chapter 22 is a, a well-known chapter. Uh, the reason why it's well-known, because when you read Luke 22, there's no time for us to read it. There's about 71 verses there. But if you read the entire Luke, Luke 22, the chapter contains the Lord's betrayal by Judas Iscariot. It contains the Lord's supper the scene at the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord's arrest, and the Jewish trial that took place. Right? Very important incidents and very important events all captured in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Now, I'm not going to cover all of these events today. Right? It's not possible to call, cover all of these events. And Kanda spoke to me this uh, last Wednesday, and he said that he's going to take part of Luke 22. Am I right, Kanda? And he's going to cover the illegal Jewish trial that took place. So thank you, Kanda, for that. All right, so he's going to cover that particular event, which is the illegal Jewish trial that took place. And we see that what started off as a religious issue in verses 70 to 71, right? It's very clear. It's a religious issue. He said, what testimony do we need? Uh, for we have heard it for ourselves that the Lord has said he is, uh, you know, the son of God. So we don't need any more. Testimony. So it was a religious issue in Luke chapter 22, and unfortunately it turned into a political issue, right, in Luke chapter 23, when they presented the Lord to Pilate. So I'm not going to deal with that, and I'll leave it up to Kanda. Now, the way I'm going to approach Luke chapter 22 is going to be very different, right, and I'm expecting some of you all to come back to me and say, why didn't you deal with this? Why didn't you deal with this? You know, 22 is all about that, right? So I'm expecting some of you all to come to me with that, but I'm going to take a very different tact when you look at Luke chapter 22. So to do that, let us begin by looking at Luke chapter 9, right? Now, in Luke chapter 9, in verse 20, we read of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Very clear. Luke chapter 9, verse 20, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah of God. And that happened near Mount Hermon, up north, north of Galilee, near Mount Hermon. The Lord asked the disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Messiah, the Messiah of God. That was Peter's confession. However, good old Peter, immediately after his confession, Peter rebuked the Lord for saying that the Son of Man must be rejected and killed. And we read that. Now, this happened, as I said, near Mount Hermon. And eight days later, we see that the Lord was transfigured. It happened eight days later. And soon after that, it was the end of his Galilean ministry, or the end of his earthly ministry at Galilee. And what did the Lord do? Then he started his final journey towards Jerusalem. And that is why in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right? So it was just a very short time period between Peter's confession in chapter 9 
that Jesus is the Messiah of God near Mount Hermon to the time of the Last Supper in chapter 22. It's not a long period. It was a very short period of time. Now, why is this background context important? Why is it important? The reason is because between, between this short period of time, there was an ongoing squabble amongst the disciples as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, you can see that. Ongoing squabble, ongoing dispute. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? The Lord had signaled to the disciples that this was his end of his earthly ministry. So what did the disciples expect? Wow, the Lord is going to establish his kingdom on this earth immediately. And therefore, I should be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Right? And due to this, you can see this ongoing power struggle that took place. Right? It started in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, where it says that a dispute arose amongst them as to which of them would be the greatest. It continued right along his journey towards Jerusalem. And we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, the chapter that we are dealing with. And in this chapter, chapter 22, verse 24, this is what it says. Now, there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, unfortunately, this struggle or this dispute or this squabble even involved mothers. Now, let me tell you, when mothers get involved in children's affairs, look out. Right? So the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to the Lord in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 21. And we read this. Then the mother of Zebedee, sons of, uh, sorry, mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons and kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, this is all but good mother's wish. Grant that these two sons of mine may, be, may sit, one on your right hand and, one, and the other on the left in your kingdom. Right? So one can only imagine the tension in the journey from Galilee to the upper room, right? With the ongoing squabble amongst the disciples and disputes as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you one thing. What the Lord did in the Passover was amazing, and that's what I want to deal with. Because the Lord took the opportunity when celebrating the Passover meal to redefine what you mean by greatness in the kingdom of God. And that's what, for me, Luke 22 is. He redefined the concept of greatness in the kingdom. In verses 25 and 27 in Luke 22, we see how the world defines greatness, right? So let's look at what the world says about greatness in the kingdom of God uh, and how they view power and how they view influence, how they view leadership. And this is what the Lord said, not I, but the scriptures, but the Lord said about the Gentiles' view of greatness, the world's view of greatness. So in verse 25 and verse 27, this is what the Lord said. The kings of the Gentile exercises lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. And in verse 27, for who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? So this is how the Lord said how the Gentiles, the world, views greatness, greatness and power in the eyes of the world. And there are two things that the Lord mentions here. First, greatness in the eyes of the world lies in positional authority. Leadership in this world lies in positional authority. So one's position bestows certain privileges and hence power to exercise authority and control. 
right? So if you are in a particular position, you will have that privilege, that power to exercise control, to exercise authority. This is a common understanding of power, common understanding of leadership. And unfortunately, it still dominates the secular world today. So power is wrapped up in positions. Power is wrapped up in symbolisms. For example, I am the manager, so I get a bigger office and better perks. Right? I can still remember when I, used to, when I started working for Unilever, I was promoted to senior manager. Now in Unilever, it's a large organization, so you get promoted, and when you become a senior manager, it's tremendous. So I was promoted to senior manager, and the next day they gave me a different office. It was twice the size of my previous office. I got four flower pots instead of two, because that was what was given to you, right? And I got two towels in the bathroom, right? Because you, you go to a different bathroom if you're a senior manager, and there you have two towels. Tea was served in a silver plate, right? You don't get the, the man coming in that you know, trolley to serve you tea, but it's served in a silver plate. So it's wrapped up in symbolisms, right? So I'm a manager, I get better perks. Right? I'm a manager, I'm in this authority, so I get these types of privileges. Unfortunately, people who embrace this mindset finds it very, very difficult to let go of power. Very difficult to exercise humility, to listen to the view of others. Why? Because their entire self-esteem as to who they are becomes wrapped up in the position that they hold. And this is what the Lord said, positional authority. It's important that we remind ourselves that is poison, I'll call it a poison. The poison of positional authority is not only confined to people who hold offices. You might be thinking this is only confined to people who hold offices, whether in secular or in religious organizations like the church. But it's a mindset that can poison anyone, right? I am senior, therefore I have more privileges. I should be listened to. I am older, or I have more experience, or I am more talented. Uh, these are all examples of positional authority that we find in the scriptures. And the Bible says this, the Lord says this. This is the secular worldview of greatness, of leadership. And the other thing that the Lord said here is quid quo pro. You know what quid quo pro is? Quid quo pro is another example of, of authority in this world. Quid quo pro behavior is what greatness and power, how greatness and power is viewed in this world. It's all about exchange relationships. The one who holds power is the benefactor. Why? Because they hold all the resources. And such resources are dispensed and granted in return for some advantage. That's what quid quo pro is. And that's what the Lord says. Right? You kings are the Gentiles, you leaders, you hold positional power, you are the benefactors. There's this exchange relationship. You give resources in order to gain certain benefits. Now, as part of my work in the university, I research about organizational behavior. That's what I do. I research about how people behave in organizations. I have found, and this is very true, that employees within organizations do exercise altruistic behavior. They do. However, however, psychologists call this what is known as egoistic altruism. What does it mean? It means I will love my neighbor as myself as long as it benefits me. Right? I will love my neighbor as myself as long as it benefits me. So, in verse 26, what did the Lord do? The Lord turned this whole concept of greatness, the whole concept of power on its head, totally on its head. And that's what he says in verse 26. But not so among you, the Lord said, not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as what? 
the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. So in this verse, in this verse, let me tell you, lies what I would refer to as the best definition of a servant leader. The best definition of a servant or the best definition of servant leadership. Now Luke does not mention this event during this Passover meal, Luke 22. But we read of this in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. In order to emphasize this point, this is what the Lord did. He removed his outer garment. He wrapped himself with a towel. He poured water into a basin. He got down on his knees and what did he do? He washed his disciples' feet. That's what the Lord did. Now, while I acknowledge that Luke 22 is known as a chapter describing the Lord's Supper, let me use the liberty that I have on this pulpit to retitle chapter 22. And I'm going to retitle this and call it The Lord, the Greatest Servant of All. That's what I would like to retitle this. The Lord, the Greatest Servant of All. The Lord's role modeling of a servant, let me tell you, left a very deep impression in the minds of his disciples. Very deep impression. So much so that in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 30, how did the disciples refer to the Lord? The disciples referred to the Lord as the Holy Servant Jesus. The Holy Servant Jesus. Such an impression that the Lord left in the minds of his disciples. Now, two weeks ago, uh, I was in a very far country. Uh, you might be wondering where I was. I was in Iceland, right? of all the places, attending a conference, a secular conference. Let me tell you, a secular conference on servant leadership. Now, you may be surprised to hear this, but the business world has now embraced this whole concept of servant leadership. And many organizations are attempting uh, to practice this as their preferred style of leadership. Unfortunately, it comes with its fish hooks, right? In the business world, the term servant leadership is attributed to a person called Greenleaf. They say that's why it started, Greenleaf. In 1977, he released a book called Servant Leadership. However, at that conference, I took the opportunity to remind many of them that this term was not coined by Greenleaf in 1977. In fact, its origin is found where? Here in the scriptures, in the Bible. And the Lord himself, who is the greatest servant of all, said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Right? The Bible is where you get the greatest definition, the origins of servant leadership. The Lord, the greatest servant of all. So, let me use this uh, remaining minutes to look at the characteristic of a true servant. Taking the example from our Lord, the characteristic of a true servant. There are five characteristics of a servant that comes through in this chapter, Luke chapter 22. And let's talk about these five characteristics and see how it can be applied in our lives. First characteristic that we see is of humility, humbleness or humility. Now, let us not confuse humility with meekness. The reason is because some of the humble people that I know exhibit great strength, right? So let's not confuse humility with meekness. Humility means setting aside one's position. Remember, positional authority is what the secular world thinks of, right? So it's setting aside one's position 
in order to consider the needs of others. So what humility does, it does not allow your positional authority, does not allow your power to get in the way of serving the needs of others. In verse 29, for example, we read that the Lord said that God the Father has bestowed upon me a kingdom, a kingdom to the Lord Jesus Christ. In terms of position, who is the Lord? He is the Son of God. He is the ruler of the heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that was bestowed upon him. He is the creator of the universe. That's what who he is. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, this is what the Apostle Paul says of the Lord. Let this mind be new, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, who being the very God, left his positional authority, left his positional glory in heaven, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of what? No reputation. In order to consider our fallen state, the greatest need of mankind, he set aside his positional glory in heaven and came down for our needs. The Lord characterizes humility, epitomizes humility, and that's a character of a servant, a servant leader. A second characteristic that we see here is of self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is another characteristic that we see of a servant. And as I mentioned earlier, the Lord epitomizes this. In verse 19, what did he do? When he took the bread, that's what we're going to do in a short while. He said, this is my body which is given for you. In verse 20, he took the cup after the supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is what? Shed for you. The body was broken for you and me. The blood was shed for you and me. He gave his life as a ransom for us, as a sacrifice for our sins. The Lord's self-sacrifice was not for his own benefit, but for our benefit, so that we who believe in him would, not, would be translated from darkness to light, from death, spiritual death to eternal life in Christ. Now you tell me if there is any other better example of self-sacrifice. Tell me. For me, it is probably the cornerstone of servanthood. Self-sacrifice. Yet, it's the most difficult example to follow. Now let me tell this to you, and I am guilty of this. Certain amount of self-sacrifice is possible, and I do that. right? Perhaps towards those who care for me. Perhaps towards those who love me and who reciprocate my love in return. But self-sacrifice towards those who actually don't like us, who are there to plot our downfall, who delight in our failures, now that is difficult. Yet the Lord for us is an example of servant behavior to follow. We know what the scripture says, that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, he came and died for us. Now this is self-sacrifice. And, and this is a behavior of servant leadership or servant leaders. Or servant. Third characteristic that we see here is focusing on heavenly rewards. A true servant's gaze is heavenwards, not downwards, heavenwards, towards the inheritance he or she has in heaven. Now, while the disciples were thinking of greatness and power on this earth, immediately on this earth, in a very secular and worldly sense, the Lord directed their attention heavenwards. In verses 29 and 30, this is what the Lord says, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, 
just as my father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It's a heavenward. The Lord directed their attention towards the inheritance they have in Christ, in him, heavenward. Now, being a servant or a servant leader may not necessarily earn you any kudos or any reward on this earth. In fact, the chances are that your work will go unnoticed and sometimes unappreciated. That's what happens. But when we gaze heavenwards, our reward and our inheritance is above. And this is where the servant draws their recognition, their joy and their motivation. Not to look downwards on the earth for earthly rewards, but to look heavenwards. And that's where our recognition comes from. That's where our joy and our motivation comes from. Fourthly, a servant seeks to bring out the best in others. That's what a servant does. A servant brings out the best potential in others, sees the best in others. Now, I'm sure we are all guilty of this, and sometimes we continue to be guilty of this. At times, we tend to write, easily write others off. Why? Because they have failed. Write them off. You make one mistake and you're toast. Right? No one will give you another chance. Right? To give you an opportunity to bring out the best in you because you have failed. That's it. Finish. Gone. No more chance. But the servant leader, a servant, seeks and knows the potential and bring out the best in people. Now, this was not the case in our Lord. He brought out the best in people. In verse 31, the Lord said this of Simon. What did the Lord say of Simon? Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And what was Peter's response? Well, Peter being Peter, the impulsive Peter, said in verse 33, Peter confidently said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What did the Lord reply and say in verse 34? I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. Did the Lord write Peter off? No. In fact, the Lord prayed for Peter. And that's what the Lord said. Standing as his mediator, that his faith will not fail. The Lord saw the potential in Peter. And in spite of Peter's failure, the Lord used him subsequently to strengthen the brethren. That's what the Lord says. When you come back to me, go strengthen your brethren. So a servant seeks the best in others seeks to bring out the potential in others. And lastly, a servant subjects him or herself to the will of God. Right? A servant does that to the will of his master. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to being arrested by the temple guards, the Lord agonized in his humanity. He agonized that. Realizing the enormous pain, realizing the suffering that he would go through, the Lord cried out to his father, and in his cry, he willingly subjected himself to the will of the Father. And in verse 42, he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So as the Lord set for us an example, we should also therefore subject ourselves to the Lord's will. Subject ourselves as slaves of righteousness, seeking to do the, seeking to do the will of God in our lives. This is what characterizes a true servant. So, in summary, what can I say? What do we say? In his humility, the Lord's humility, he left his positional glory in heaven. 
in his humanity, he gave himself a tremendous self-sacrifice for our sins. While on the earth, he subjected himself to the will of his Father. By his resurrection, he purchased for us a glorious inheritance in heaven. And that's where our focus should be. And as a mediator, he seeks to bring out the best in each and every one of us. In short, while we partake of this bread and wine, let us remember the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest servant of all. He left us a pattern of servant behavior that we as believers must follow. And for me, that's what I see in Luke 22. Right. And uh, let's pray. And before we pray, I would like us to start this time of open worship by singing number 60. I'll, right from the mission, uh, sorry, from Hukune Sacred Song. But I'll pray and then let's sing number 60 from Hukune Sacred Songs. Father, we thank you for this morning that you have given us to remind us of your son, the greatest servant of all. Father God, we thank you for the sacrifice that your son made on the cross of Calvary for our sins. While we are still sinners, the scripture says that Christ our Lord came and died for us. So Father, we pray that you will direct our hearts, direct our attention and direct our minds to your son, the greatest servant of all. Amen.